Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. We have not chosen confrontation. We are hoping for the best, but we are prepared for the worst. But another future is possible. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, politics editor at Politico in Brussels. And we're coming to you this week with the threat of war still hanging over Europe. You just heard European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen talking in the European Parliament this week about the ongoing crisis triggered by Russia's deployment of more than 100,000 troops on Ukraine's borders. It's also been the subject of a special meeting of EU leaders ahead of their summit with the African Union here in Brussels this week. We'll talk more in just a moment about the latest diplomatic efforts to resolve the crisis with reporters in Berlin, Kiev and Moscow amid mixed signals from Russia over whether it's de-escalating or not. And later in the podcast, you'll hear from Heather Conley. She's the new president of the German Marshall Fund of the United States, a think tank in the business of promoting transatlantic ties. My friends, settle in. We are in a 1947-49 moment where we have to dig deep, defend our principles. And this is going to be painful for everyone who made a lot of economic bets on trade and relationships, you know, making everybody peaceful. It didn't work. And be sure to stick around until the end of the podcast to hear a fresh round of recommendations for reading, watching or listening. But first, let's check in with our podcast panel. So it's a warm welcome to Matt in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Hello there. And uh, we have guests in a couple of locations that are different from our usual ones um, for fairly obvious reasons. First of all, our uh, Brussels politics reporter Hans von der Burkhardt is currently in Kiev. Hi, Hans. Hi, hello. And it's a podcast debut for Eva Hartel, who's been writing for us from Moscow. Hi, Eva. Hello, Trivet. Hi. So um, I wanted to get a real sense as much as possible of the mood in both Moscow and Kiev um, while we have you both here, uh, Hans and Eva. Eva, in particular, I'm really interested to know how much is this a topic of conversation among Muscovites? Do you hear people talking about it on the metro? And what are the messages that uh, ordinary Russians, are you like, if you like, are getting from their leaders and from the media, from state-controlled media? Do you have the sense that they are being 
prepared for war. Um, you know, can you make any comparison with 2013, 2014, the last time, you know, we had uh, an armed conflict in, in Ukraine flaring up or beginning? It's a great comparison because actually the annexation of Crimea, no matter how controversial, was very much welcomed in Russia. So it got Putin's his highest popularity ratings this tenure. This is an entirely different kettle of fish altogether. I mean, I spent the Christmas holidays in Europe, so I wasn't in Moscow, and we were talking about this then too. We thought Europe or Russia is on the threshold on the eve of war, and once I came back to Moscow early January, I asked my friends, my colleagues, my uh, people I know, my acquaintances, and many of them didn't even know that there was an issue at all. And now, very slowly, I think that tide is turning a bit. So you do see Russians becoming more aware of a possible threat. But because Russian state media has an altogether different narrative of what's going on, and Russian politicians do too, which is basically that the West is the aggressor here. The United States is pushing this towards, one, an escalation or possible war. Um, there's this widespread sense, I think, that the West is seeking out a confrontation and Russia is trying not to get involved with Putin as the kind of main peace broker. Well. How do they explain the 100,000 plus troops or is that just not mentioned on the, on the border? I think they're very smart about this. I mean, they say, as Putin has said repeatedly, these are our troops. These were planned military exercises. As we have said throughout this entire crisis, we're now withdrawing them. This is our country. These are our borders. This is Russian sovereignty. We get to do with our troops what we want. And everything else is just hocus pocus, panic, fear mongering, and a pretense to actually arm Ukraine. Well, I mean, it's just fascinating to hear that kind of version of events, if you like. Hans, what about in Kiev? You were out and about today. We're recording on Wednesday evening. And today, of course, had been pinpointed, uh, according to reports uh, by US intelligence, as a possible start of a new Russian attack on Ukraine. And President Zelensky then said, well, if this is what we're being told, there's going to be a day of defiance. Uh, we're going to uh, a day of unity. Uh, we're going to stand up. So how did that actually manifest itself in, in Kiev today? And what's your general impression of the mood there at the moment, as much as anyone can judge it? Yeah, so this uh, day of unity was actually uh, not so much uh, the big manifestation of many, many people waving flags and uh, uh, a strong show of people on the streets, as uh, you might have imagined, or I also expected something more to happen. But actually what happened this morning is there was a uh, hoisting of a, a Ukrainian flag with the president. Um, then the president went to uh, eastern Ukraine to uh, visit the, the regions um, uh, that are close to the conflict zone. There were some rallies in uh, mostly western Ukrainian cities. But here in Kiev, it was remarkably uh, almost nothing. And then, of course, there was this threat of a potential Russian invasion uh, this Wednesday as well. But also there, most people said, either they said, oh, we don't really believe that it's going to happen or that it was going to happen. Or they just said, we've been hearing this now for so many weeks that uh, an invasion might be imminent. and They were threatened by Russia. So they just said, uh, well, keep calm and carry on. Uh, 
and um, not worry too much about it. That's also a message I got a lot. Um, there was actually only one person I spoke to, a barista here in a cafe, who really told me, well, last night when all the media was reporting that an attack could happen, uh, it's supposed to happen at 3 a.m. in the morning. I got really scared. That's what she told me. And uh, that she cried and, and her boyfriend had to calm her down. But most people I really talk to, they either say, we don't believe it's really going to happen or we just stopped worrying about it. Uh, these polit political events uh, evolve, but uh, our daily lives have to continue. Mm, yeah. Okay, let's switch to the diplomatic front for a moment. Uh, Matt, it was the turn of the German Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, to... Uh, take the lead, if you like, on the diplomatic front. And he was in Kiev and also in Moscow, speaking to President Zelensky, speaking to President Putin. Uh, one of his main messages there seemed to be to try and reassure Russia that the prospect of Ukraine joining NATO was just not something anybody needed to worry about for a very long time to come. Um, what did you make of how he did? What did you make of uh, his efforts to try and defuse this crisis? I think it's important here to look at what's happening behind the scenes. And, you know, it's kind of tempting to look at the public stage because that's what, what we all see. But I think the real question is what is happening in those meetings? You know, and I, I think Schultz now, the meeting with Zelensky was much longer than expected, although I think this is always part of, you know, the Germans' plan to say, you know, I mean, it's ridiculous to think they would only meet for a half hour, to be honest. But he did meet for a long time with him. He met a long time with Putin as well. And, you know, presumably they were they were talking about more than, you know, Gerhard Schroeder possibly joining Gazprom's board and, and that type of thing. In terms of the date and, you know, whether that was right or wrong, the moment the Americans said that they were going to invade on that day, they weren't going to invade on that day. And I think that the strategy that the U.S. has had here has been quite interesting because, I think it is actually working in a way in that they have shown that this is not 2014, that the Europeans are not willing to just sort of stand by and watch Russia move deeper into Ukraine. But I think that Putin is seeing that the West is much more united maybe than he expected. And if he expected the U.S. to just look the other way, maybe thinking that after the pullout from Afghanistan, after Obama's declaration about the red line in Syria, which he didn't end up defending, that this was just going to be another case where he could do pretty much whatever he wanted. And I think he's learned that there are limits here. But at the same time, I don't think that he will leave this empty-handed, as it were, even if he does pull back the troops. I doubt that he will pull back all of them, by the way. It seems that he's established probably a semi-permanent presence in Belarus, which he's brought back into the Russian sphere. So this is really more about Moscow showing that it is still going to be in control of this swathe of territory, at least it will try to be in control of it. And I think, to me, the main takeaway of, of the Schultz meeting there in Kiev was the pains that both he and Zelensky seemed to go to, to show that, you know, NATO wasn't really on the table anymore, which is certainly not something that we would have heard a few years ago out of either Germany or, or Ukraine on that point. The question is, is that going to be enough 
to satisfy Putin. But I think even if he pulls back the troops now, this threat is going to remain. Yeah, it does feel like there's echoes of the Cold War also with with NATO. Uh, The Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg saying today that they were going to plan and look at, you know, greater presence in the East. Uh, I will not preempt any final decision. Uh, We have asked our military commanders to provide advice and and, uh, um, provide more details uh, on the scale and the scope. Uh, including of uh, potential new battle groups uh, in the east, uh, in the southeast, in, 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 in Romania and the Black Sea region, and also other potential adjustments or more longer-term presence uh, in the east. And it does feel like we, you know, all very much hope, obviously, that it's not going to come to war, but we could be in for, you know, a very prolonged period of heightened tension again um, between east and west, if you like. But Eva, let's uh, close with you. You were saying, because we do hear a lot in the West that Putin needs some kind of big victory, that he can't be humiliated here, that he's kind of marched his troops up to the top of the hill and he can't just march them down again. But I think, you know, you're of the view that that's not necessarily the case, right? Yeah, I think there are many scenarios. So we have been working from the assumption that Russia has been planning a full invasion of Ukraine, uh, whereas this, of course, is about spheres of influence, extent to which Moscow can influence Kiev, uh, means by which it can do so. So actually, another important development this week, of course, was that Russia's parliament voted in favor of proposing, suggesting to Putin to recognize the two regions, breakaway regions, so Donetsk and Lugansk, as independent to recognize those breakaway regions, which, of course, would pave the way for a possible future military intervention or assistance, as they would call that in Moscow, in the way we've seen it happen in Kazakhstan, for example. So, Putin has distanced himself from that and said, no, we actually put our focus on the Minsk agreements. We're not going to go down that road. But, you know, Russian parliament is just responding to public opinion. This is what Russians themselves would want because Russians care about what's happening in eastern Ukraine. And what's happening there is actually genocide. He described it as genocide yesterday. So, right, which was a remarkable description, I think. Absolutely. Not one that you would hear, you know, from anybody outside of that circle, I would think. And it's a version that we've been hearing a lot on uh, Russian state media in the past weeks. So in that sense, Russians are definitely being primed for something, for maybe coming to the aid of the 170,000 or so Russian citizens who live, who've been handed Russian passports in the past months and years, who live in those regions. So I think at the very least, Russia can, just like the West can come away from this saying we didn't manage to get a lot of sleep, but at least we averted a war we, by intervening in the way we did. Putin can twist it to exactly that same narrative. He can turn to Russia, the Russian population and say, you know, I, thanks to my strong leadership, have managed to avert a war with NATO in the US. And at least I'm here defending our national interests. And I also completely agree with the idea that this is not something that will be resolved in the next couple of weeks. Even if we do see a partial withdrawing or relocating, it looks like, of troops, Putin can afford to sit this one out. He's playing the long game. Any concession, any hesitation, future hesitation on Ukraine's part to actually apply for membership of NATO, all of that can be considered a win because from where he stands, 
before December, no one was even thinking of reconsidering NATO's right or Ukraine's right to apply for NATO membership. So he's managed to twist it all to his own hands, basically. Putin is the one calling the shots. At least that's the way he feels at the moment. Okay, well, one assumes. Yeah, right. As much as any of us knows what Vladimir Putin is feeling or thinking. Um, we could talk for a lot more about this, and I dare say we will again. So I think we'll leave it there for now. Eva, Hans and Matt, thanks very much. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hans, Eva and Matt and I will be back later in the podcast with our recommendations. But before we take a short break, I wanted to draw your attention to two stories that we might normally have discussed in the panel. But we wanted to focus on the Ukraine crisis, uh, given how serious it is. And we also wanted to make the most of having Eva with us from Moscow. The first story I wanted to mention is an in-depth piece from Matt on Wolfgang Ischinger, the veteran German diplomat at the centre of the Munich Security Conference, which takes place this weekend. The story explores how Ischinger has turned the MSC, as it's known, into a global gathering of political, diplomatic and business A-listers, and how that has overlapped with his own commercial interests. And we'll also note here, for the record, that Wolfgang Ischinger insists he's always adhered to the highest ethical standards. There's a link to that article in our show notes, along with one on another big story in Brussels this week, the EU's top court giving legal backing to a new European Commission power that would allow Brussels to cut funds to EU member countries that fall short when it comes to the rule of law. That one's likely to have far-reaching implications and we'll be sure to come back to it in a future edition. Now, coming up right after this short break, we'll have our special guest, German Marshall Fund President Heather Conley, who talks transatlantic relations and Russia ahead of this weekend's Munich Security Conference. Stay with us. 
Immediately before joining the Washington-based think tank, she was Senior Vice President for Europe, Eurasia and the Arctic at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies, or CSIS as it's known for short. She's also served in the US federal government. I served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the George W. Bush administration as a political appointee. Prior to that, I worked as a civil servant under first George H.W. Bush, and then I served a year under the Clinton administration, again, as a a civil servant. But to be honest with you, I'm a centrist. Uh, I consider myself a moderate Republican without party, but I also believe that the U.S., cannot be a strong actor in the world unless there is strong bipartisanship in our national security and foreign policy. And Politico's David Herzenhorn began their conversation earlier this week by asking whether, after four tumultuous years under the Trump administration, transatlantic relations are now back. I'm a person that believes that transatlantic relations, you know, are never back. They are always there. They are an essential pillar of U.S. foreign and security policy. You know, so I think what's happened uh, is, uh, I'll speak from a Washington perspective, we, we forgot what good, strong alliance management and maintenance took. And it takes a heck of a lot of work. It is an investment. And you don't necessarily see the return on investment in an immediate sense. You have to stay. You can't leave. You have to be deeply invested in our allies, you know, the economy and their political developments, just as our European allies. Boy, whenever I talk to my European counterparts, they know more about America's political system uh, than I, I wish the average American would know more about the German political system and the French political system and the British system as well. Why? Because their security depends on our politics and how uh, how we approach things. So I know it may wax and wane for others on their foreign policy agenda. And certainly the last 20 years, the United States was very focused on uh, South Asia, Afghanistan, the Middle East, and then we pivoted to the Indo-Pacific. And it seemed as if, again, the investment wasn't there to make sure our European allies understood us. But most importantly, we understood where our European allies were. That's the missing piece. And I know American officials speak very honestly when they say, I am consulting with my European counterparts. They are informing their European allies of a decision that was reached in Washington. Now, that's understandable, but that's not consultation. That means we go in with an idea, then we talk to our allies, and that may mean we have to shape that uh, outcome a little differently. That's how we bring allies along. And we've we've disinvested in sort of our physical presence in Europe, uh, understanding the economics, the changing political dynamics. Um, and now, though, we've got to invest. We've got to invest. And and look, I know we're going to talk about Russia in a second here, but, you know, this isn't, this crisis isn't going away. This is not going to wax and wane that we're having a transatlantic moment and then we will go back to our regularly scheduled Indo-Pacific moment. We have got to stay here and invest because the United States cannot be as strong a political, uh, economic, and security actor unless Europe is with us. And for far too long, the American foreign policy establishment was like, Europe is done. They're going to have to follow us anyway because we're super strong and they'll get over, you know, whatever the unpleasantness. 
What Afghanistan, the withdrawal showed us, what August showed us is, no, my friends, we have to change how we do this. So I think this is a moment, and I think this administration, and, and look, Joe Biden is a great transatlanticist. We are very, very fortunate. But in, in my, my small critique of that transatlanticism, it can't be the old transatlanticism. It has to be the new. And that new transatlanticism has yet to be defined. And I want GMF to be at the epicenter of defining that new transatlanticism. Well, thank you. And you've given a perfect bridge to uh, a conversation about Russia. We do have a situation, quite a serious security situation with more than 100,000 troops massed on the border. I'm just coming from NATO headquarters where folks are still fretting about this, even though there are some positive soundings coming from the Kremlin. And maybe I could ask, to, to you mentioned a president that you served, George W. Bush, who said he looked into Putin's eyes and saw his soul and found him to be trustworthy. But at CSIS, in one of your previous roles, you did a series on the Kremlin, and you were trying to look into the Kremlin's mind which maybe you found something else. And, and maybe you could help us. What, what's your take on what has Putin been up to? What do we make of this um, now with the threat not having um, subsided at all? You're so right. Many, many American presidents, uh, you know, going back even to, to President Clinton, uh, they sort of uniquely believe that they have the personality to overcome the problem. And we just, we don't have the personality because the problem is we have a dramatically different view about particularly Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia, Belarus. We believe that they are sovereign countries that uh, require and demand territorial integrity and, and the uh, freedom of choice, whether how they choose badly, uh, they choose, you know, a, a great path, a, a, a difficult path, that is their choice. Uh, we fundamentally disagree on that. And uh, the Kremlin does not believe these countries are sovereign. And in fact, Mr. Putin has gone so far in his, his essay last year to say that actually the Ukrainian people aren't people, you know, they are historically one with Russia. So we that's where you can't dialogue your way through that difference, unfortunately. Um, so what are we seeing now? And this is sort of getting back to where I think the German Marshall Fund is uh, uniquely placed because we are the spirit of the Marshall Plan. And if you, for all of you historians out there amongst your listeners, uh, does this not feel like the 1947-1949 period where we thought we had a partner and then the Soviet Union, George Marshall, Secretary George Marshall, went to Moscow um, to visit with Stalin. He wanted a stable and predictable relationship, too. In fact, he had a really good relationship with Joseph Stalin uh, because of the, the, the wartime alliance. But he understood that this was a different country. They were breaking treaties and promises left, right, and center. And what Marshall knew was that we had to defend the principles and the rules that the greatest generation fought to do. And so what did we do? We created NATO, the Berlin airlift. We protected, we gave people hope, um, and we did not uh, allow the Soviet Union to dictate that freedom, particularly for, for West Berlin. So we need to dig a little deeper here. Uh, and I, I feel that for me, we're just, we're just reacting but here's my concern, Dave, and I may be completely wrong. Obviously, this is speculation. What this administration and our European capitals are geared for is crisis. We can rally for that crisis moment. We c it's hard for democracies to hold that crisis moment for a long time. And I fear we are now in for the long, slow 
grind, that this is never going away. Those forces, like they didn't in May, in April, they never went away. They continue to build. Let's see if those forces leave Belarus. I I doubt it, but, you know, well, let's see. Now we are in a different place. This is not just a moment to get past, and then we, again, switch to our regularly scheduled foreign policy objectives. This is the long, slow grind. And, oh, by the way, this long, slow grind, it now has a Sino-Russian dimension. So, my friends, settle in. We are in a 1947-49 moment where we have to dig deep defend our principles. And this is going to be painful for everyone who made a lot of economic bets on trade and relationships, you know, making everybody peaceful. It didn't work. So now we have to do something else. I asked this question of NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg just a few minutes ago, and that is about the striking statement that we saw right at the start of the Beijing Olympics, China and Russia together demanding a halt to NATO expansion. And my question is, If last spring, when NATO leaders gathered, they had not started talking about the China threat, about a need for NATO, which is a transatlantic, the Euro-Atlantic space, to look toward China, would we be in this situation now where China is weighing in? And are we seeing the the lines being drawn in in almost a civilizational battle going forward of, as Stoltenberg described, two authoritarian governments uh, saying that they are going to link arms – and, you know, is this actually the, the fight NATO wants to be having or is it unavoidable to your mind? Would it have come to NATO regardless? So I see, David, the Putin-Xi Jinping statement um, as really the first declaration uh, that we're seeing the major restructuring of the international system or an attempt at it. It is a dynamic alignment. It is not an alliance but is now becoming uh, this globally dynamic alignment that we now have to understand profoundly. And it took an enormous amount of work to make sure that uh, our European partners understood that that's not benign economic and trade, that there is something structurally different uh, about that assistance. It's had mixed results, but I think it progress. So, you know, this is the challenge. Um, Russia, you know, the Soviet Union was not a well-integrated economy. Russia is a globally integrated uh, economy. China is a globally integrated economy. This enemy lives from within, and it's very difficult to pull it out to or to to transition it out if uh, as it you know, impacts uh, a country's national security. So does NATO want this fight? The West doesn't want this fight. We've been very clear. And you know what? That tells Mr. Putin, you don't want this fight? Great. You can lean back as I lean in and keep growling at you because I'm interested in this fight. Thank you very much. The Chinese, I'm interested in this regional fight. Are you interested in it? And this is where, again, the 1947-1949 moment, we have to think anew and restructure. The world didn't work out as we originally thought. Now we have to do something different, but we do it together. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end this, though, David, on a, on a positive note because I'm an American and I'm positive and I will remain positive no matter what. Um, 
We're seeing some really promising things. We have an opportunity, I think, to bring the transatlantic and the transpacific together. And uh, I'll just bring this around to the German Marshall Fund. That's where we need to be. We need to be that bridge because this isn't going away. This is the long slog. And but the West can be successful here. I'm I'm totally convinced. Well, we look forward to watching GMF and you with GMF leading the conversation. You Confidential always asks our, our interview guests for recommendations. Uh, what else could folks be reading, listening, watching? What's, uh, what's among your favorites these days? Anything? Uh... So I, I, you know, as we all must do, read your history. And I have to say, it's, it's, it's also because of my job and I am becoming a, uh, a great student trying to learn about the Marshall Plan as we celebrate the 75th anniversary of George Marshall's historic speech at Harvard that outlined this. So I've read a, a book that looked at both Eisenhower and Marshall. It was called The Commanders by Mark Perry. I, I'm, I'm not sure I have that right and forgive the author if I, if, if I've messed that up. But I'm also reading, um, I, I read a lot about Putin's kleptocracy, reading Catherine Belton's, uh, uh, incredible book on how it, that works from inside. So I'm not sure I'm very original uh, and I wish I had more time to do all the reading that I want to do. But uh, this is a Marshall Plan reading year and understanding the 1947-1949 period. That's what I'm focusing on these days. Well, great recommendations. Thank you so much, Heather Conley of the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Really appreciate it. Great to be with you, David. Thanks. Heather Conley with some historical reading recommendations there and the title of Mark Perry's book that she mentioned is Partners in Command. Now let's bring back the podcast panel and see what we can add in the way of recommendations. Eva, what have you got? So I'm going to cheat a little because this is a book that I haven't actually read, but it is one that I've been meaning <laughs> to read for a long time and it's has become very relevant now. Uh, and it's a book called The Front Line by... Serhii Plochi, he's a professor at Harvard of Ukrainian history, and he does a great job at describing the roots of these tensions between Ukraine and Russia and actually going back in history and showing that, you know, this tension between the two neighbors goes back to pre-revolutionary times. Um, Matt, what have you got? In keeping with the Russia theme and the Russia-German axis, as it were, um, my recommendation is a German series called Im Angesicht des Verbrechens, which is a few years old, but I think most people will be aware that the Germans in Europe are often seen as sort of Russia lovers, Russland Versteher, as they're called here. And this series is about the Russian underworld in Berlin. And it's just a kind of a fascinating look into this this subculture here that I think a lot of people don't know much about. Okay, good. Hans, have you got one? I can just in general recommend to uh, perhaps read a bit about this uh, forgotten conflict in eastern Ukraine because just being here in Kiev uh, in the past days and also walking by this commemoration wall in uh, city center Kiev where you have the faces of all those who died in this conflict uh, that started as a separatist movement, uh, people that are unhappy, again, uh, about the pro-European orientation that uh, Ukraine took and then quickly turned into uh, an armed conflict because Russia was backing them and at some point even sent its own troops in. So uh, this has been, unfortunately, an, an armed conflict, uh, largely forgotten, that's now been going on for eight years. And just reading up on that and uh, perhaps not forgetting about it is something I would recommend. 
Right, and if people wanted to read up, they could, for example, read our colleague David Herzenhorn's uh, special report from uh, a couple of months ago. We'll include a link to that in our show notes. Uh, a quick one from me. I caught up with uh, the movie Belfast, uh, Kenneth Branagh's kind of homage to his uh, hometown Uh it's a great film. It is, of course, it does have a kind of political backdrop, but it's just a, a very good movie, quite a sentimental look, I think, at Belfast, even though the troubles are in the background and it also has some good Irish humour. So I would recommend that Belfast, uh, Kenneth Branagh's movie. Bit of a Celtic unity going Yeah, on. the old Celtic mafia. Branagh himself reached out to me and asked if I could give it a plug, mm-hmm. so I felt it was the least I could do. Eva, Matt, Hans, thanks very much. Thanks. Spasiba. Thank you. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to subscribe or follow us. And if you have a moment, we'd really appreciate if you could click some stars to rate the podcast or even leave us a short review, preferably a nice one. You can always send us feedback directly or ideas for future episodes. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks this week to Noah Zan and to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 